0: We often talk about whether the sanctions against North Korea are working, and we have spoken occasionally on this very podcast about the ways North Korea also cheats and gets around sanctions. But less frequently discussed at KEI or elsewhere in policymaking circles is whether it is ethical to impose the sanctions that we have on North Korea currently. To discuss this issue, we have with us today Dr. Hazel Smith, a professorial research associate in Korean studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies and Professor Emerita of International Security at Cranfield University. Her latest book from Cambridge University Press is titled North Korea, Markets and Military Rule. KAI Vice President Mark Tokola caught up with her for a discussion on this very important subject. With no further delay, from the Korea Economic Institute in Washington DC, you're listening to Korean Context.
1: There's a lot we could talk about. I'd like to focus on your May 12th article in Critical Asian Studies, the title of which was The Ethics of Non-Nation Sanctions on North Korea, Effectiveness, Necessity, and Proportionality. So I'll ask you to summarize your argument, but before that, for context, I wanted to point out that economic sanctions have been with us for a very long time. In 1935, the League of Nations imposed sanctions on Italy over its invasion of Ethiopia. And in my youth, sanctions against South Africa were a hot topic. It wasn't that apartheid was controversial. We were all against it. But the question was whether the sanctions on South Africa were hurting black South Africans more than they are undermining apartheid. So these issues have been with us for some time. So as a general proposition, first, are economic sanctions ever ethical?
2: I think you're absolutely right, Mark sanctions go back a very very long time two and a half thousand years ago Thucydides when writing about the Peloponnesian war talked about the Megarian decree when Athens imposed sanctions on Megaria one of Sparta's allies and this is economic sanctions stop them going in the marketplaces and trading in the seas and this is since on the of this very brutal war which ended Athenian dominance so you're right they go back an awful long time and as to the justice of and justifiability of sanctions discussion and philosophising has gone on about the justice of how you treat innocence basically in conflict. Also for a long time all the major philosophical and religious traditions have talked about this. So the good thing is that we don't have to just rely on personal opinion when we're talking about the ethics of war or the ethics of conflict. It's almost easier when we're talking about war because we've got this quite long-standing tradition of just war for us to think about whether wars are ethical. And I want to mention that because I want to contrast this just war tradition in the fact that it's legalised in the Geneva Conventions with the fact that we have nothing analogous in any similar conventions or law in terms of how innocents can be treated in conflict where military force is not being used. It's quite amazing to me really, and I think it's not very well known, that we don't have analogous conventions for thinking about how innocence can be treated in peacetime. Mm. So what often happens is that the ethics of sanctions are treated as an analogy to just war and I just say briefly that that means that you think about is there a just cause, is it a right cause, and are the means that you use just and there are three very traditional criteria by which one looks at means. One is effectiveness, one is necessity, one is proportionality. So the long answer to your question is, is it rather depends on what you find out once you've been through that framework. I think governments reach
1: for sanctions because they're a tool short of war. So often there's a pressure on governments to do something about a situation and not wanting to go to war. Sanctions seem like a peaceful means of trying to apply some coercion. So they're all over the place. At this point, I saw a listing that showed that some 40 countries are under economic sanctions one form or other. So they're convenient. There are people who argue that they cannot be effective, but I'm not sure about that. I know in 1992, the US and the EU imposed sanctions on Serbia, and they cut the Serbian GDP in half quite quickly. But then what followed from that was the war in Bosnia-Herzegovina. So the sanctions seemed to have been effective, but they didn't have the desired outcome. Something else happened. So to turn to North Korea then, it's good to talk about something other than whether sanctions are working or how hard they're biting. I think it's healthy to talk about whether they're a good idea, whether they're ethical or not. So can I ask you to summarize your argument regarding North Korea?
2: First of all, a bit of scene setting. I think one of the things to think about is that economic sanctions are sometimes used as a complement to military force. But I'm going to talk about economic sanctions in the way you talked about them, which is when they're used instead of military force, when they're intended to get to a political outcome without having to go to war. The other issue is success. Now we can look at success in all sorts of different ways. Were they partially successful? Did they signal something? But I think that means that anything can be successful or anything can be a failure in analytical terms. So what I've done in this piece, and I think what quite a lot of people do when they're thinking about economic sanctions is, are the declared aims achieved? That's the way I'm looking at sanctions. And I think it's worthwhile saying that if you look at even the most conservative political science and comparative politics and historical literature, it's very, very hard to find in the empirical literature or the theoretical literature, any of it, evidence that sanctions are successful in those terms, unless they're accompanied by diplomacy, for example. But on their own, there's simply not the evidence that they are successful. Again, perhaps surprising. There's been a lot of work done in this area. And Serbia, I think, is a very good example, because the aim of the sanctions wasn't to strangle Serbia economically, per se, but it was to bring an end to the violence in the Balkans. And so you still had, in the end, NATO military activity around Sarajevo. Mm. You had active diplomacy in Dayton, and then you had the bombing of Belgrade even later on when we went into the Kosovo War. And it's very, very difficult to argue that today in Kosovo and in Bosnia-Herzegovina we've got a very productive outcome as well. So I think that's a very, very good example of the problems in, in thinking about whether sanctions on their own achieve ends. So what did I find when I started looking at this framework in terms of United Nations sanctions on North Korea. I think in terms of was the cause just? Was it right to go to use economic sanctions? There's no contest that North Korea was acting illegally, especially after the first 2006 resolution in the development of the nuclear and missile program. And irrespective of the fact there was some mission creep in the UN resolutions, nevertheless it's difficult to argue that there was not a just cause and there might be room for a debate on this but i take it as read that there's a strong argument that there was a legal and normative consensus that there was a just cause in terms of the sanctions but the issue for me once i started to look at it was are the means ethically supportable through these three criteria of effectiveness necessity and proportionality and these are the standard criteria i didn't invent them that people have used over a very long time and effectiveness isn't just about Looking back, I mean, we can look back 14 years and say the UN didn't achieve denuclearization through sanctions, therefore they weren't effective. But in ethical reasoning terms, this is an anticipatory criterion. And so the argument is, could looking at the situation in 2006, and then later in 2016, when the sanctions regime was changed, could an assessment have been made of the likely success of the measures? Now, arguably it could have been done, but the issue, and maybe again, people may not know this, it was never done there was never ever, and still hasn't been, an impact assessment, either in terms of effectiveness or impact, potential effectiveness of the sanctions. So, difficult to see that the effectiveness criteria is fulfilled. The second criteria, where economic sanctions necessary, and again this is jargon in some sense, but it's part of the normal ethical criteria, All it means is that when you use economic sanctions, they should really be a last resort. And in practical terms, in international affairs, this means, has diplomacy been used to try to effect the political change you want to? Now, in in my work, I don't concentrate on this because I think the jury is still out as to whether sustained diplomacy was either entertained or implemented with the DPRK. And the reason that I mention this is that because diplomacy normally is about process. It's about a process of negotiation to get where you want to get to. But the UN resolutions stipulated the process or the absence of it, as well as the end point. So the process was complete, irreversible and verifiable disarmament prior to negotiations. And that's a very, very odd way to do diplomacy. And diplomacy at its heart is about negotiating with actors whose values you don't share. It's not about negotiating with friends. So let's say the jury's out on this. And again, I think there can be an empirical debate as to whether there was sustained diplomacy, the UN outsourced diplomacy, which it doesn't always do, but it did in this case to the United States. So there's a big discussion about that. But I think what I was really started to find was that there were big, big problems about the issue of proportionality, particularly if we start looking at the two phases of UN sanctions on North Korea. The first phase from 2000 to 2016 was very, very different and got hardly any publicity when it was changed under the Obama administration. Between 2006 and 16, UN sanctions were targeted against individuals, institutions and commodities directly tied to the nuclear program. And I think in this period there is a reasonable argument for proportionality, although there were very, very tough enforcement of dual use sanctions. But when you start to look at the post-2016 period, because sanctions no longer differentiated between the civilian and the military economy, then I think we start to see a very, very different picture. And I don't think that that's been properly discussed. Again, for those of you that don't look at this all the time, what happened in 2016 was that all the DPRKs, North Korea's major exports were banned. Practically all imports were banned either directly or as potentially dual-use goods. And that included everything to do with agriculture. In 2017, and these are the major sanctions that I talk about in my work, energy sanctions were introduced that banned all imports of natural gas, the only time this has ever been done in a sanctions resolution in the UN ever, to North Korea and very sharply limited oil imports so that North Korea was already the second lowest importer of oil in the world is now absolutely the lowest. What does this mean for food? And that's the thing that I've been working on for quite a long time in North Korea. All modern agriculture, including in North Korea, including in the United States, including in the UK, including in poor countries, relies on oil inputs, pesticide production, for fertiliser production, for fuel for agricultural machinery, for for irrigation, for transport of food and inputs, all of it, everywhere in the world. And although in North Korea farming production does rely on manual labour, There's not much technology even today especially today maybe you can't substitute oil in everything and north korea has no indigenous oil resources it's not like iran which is sanctioned or russia which is sanctioned where they've got indigenous oil so here is where i started looking at the impact of these sanctions these latest sanctions on the farming sector and we've got lots and lots of good research on this. So what does this absence of oil inputs, what mean for food production if you can't produce fertiliser or pesticide or import oil for fuel to transport food and inputs your agriculture which feeds 25 million people and that's the thing. In North Korea, it's not the government that gets harmed by agricultural supply problems. It's the people who rely, 25 million people, most of them rely on the domestic farming sector. And that's for basic food to keep them alive. Again, this is, we're talking about 1,700 calories a day is what the food production is supposed to bring. So what were the findings? So up till 2017, and again, people may not be aware of this, the North Korean farming sector had been rebuilt so that it required a very achievable half a million tonnes of grain imports a year. And it produced in total about five million tonnes for 25 million people. That was okay, it was sufficient for about 10 years. But after 2017, with the implementation of the oil and energy sanctions, in 2018, in the harvest, the import requirement shot up to one and a half million tonnes. And that was because farm production collapsed in 2018 after the implementation of oil and energy sanctions. And we know that it was because of oil and energy sanctions because the area planted did not change very much, but yields plummeted. Now falling yields, as the agricultural organisation points out, were a direct result of this precipitous fall in oil and natural gas imports. If you haven't got fertiliser and pesticides and other agricultural inputs, your yields go down. Now again, the UN never did an impact analysis of sanctions on the civilian sector, But we've got plenty of information about the relative consumption of oil in the different economic sectors in North Korea, again, to know where these sanctions would have hit. So the agricultural production plummeted in 2018. Now, that meant that in 2019, there wasn't enough food to feed 8 million people of the 25 million population, basic Russian levels. To bring the ethical issues back in, under the Geneva Conventions, in wartime, it's an explicit war crime to destroy food production. It's an explicit war crime and this is because usually if you don't have domestic food availability its loss falls the hardest on children, the sick, the elderly, those that are out of favour with the regime, with people with contacts who can perhaps get food from abroad. So in terms of proportionality even the most conservative understandings of proportionality it's very very hard to assess energy and oil sanctions and the sanctions which prohibited agricultural equipment coming in, which were directly uh, focused on the civilian sector because the military sector by and large is covered by other sanctions as anything other than disproportionate. And if we look at those three criteria and they're not mutually exclusive and we find that there was vast disproportionality in terms of the effect on innocents, non-combatants, children, elderly, people who can't cope for themselves, it's very, very hard to argue that the ethical criteria through which all the major cultural traditions judge economic sanctions, that they were fulfilled. One of the obvious questions I'm going to finish here is why wasn't there a humanitarian disaster in 2019 and again this year? And it looks like, and from what I can tell, that China gave a million tons of food aid, which is an enormous amount, it's as much as the World Food Programme was giving in the famine at its most, in 2000. 19 and we know six hundred thousand tons probably a million tons again this year so the argument isn't that at this moment north koreans are facing a humanitarian disaster they're not because china's helping them but the argument is that that farming has been destroyed directly because of u.n sanctions and is that something that we would want to support because it means that people can't feed themselves in the future as well as now and politically of course it pushes north korea directly and makes them much more of a client state of China than they ever were before.
1: Let me ask three kind of quick questions. First, let's go back to the 2006 sanctions. They were designed to slow down the North Korean or prevent their nuclear weapons program. And there has been some analysis that shows that uh, the surprise about North Korea is not that they developed nuclear weapons. The surprise is how long it took them. So it could be argued that the 2006 sanctions actually did slow down the program, and that was useful. So in that sense, were those sanctions justified or ethical?
2: The objective of sanctions was not to slow down. It was to end. That was the objective in the un resolutions there's just as much an argument to say it slowed down the uh, production of north korea's nuclear weapons as there is to say that the geneva agreement between 1994 and 2002 when no sanctions were used by the un at all slowed down north korean nuclear development because there was no missile testing and of course it ended all in tears in 2002 2003 but it's the same sort of argument it's an opinion it can't be justified in any real schematic terms Okay, then in terms of
1: effectiveness as opposed to proportionality, could one make the case that 2018 summitry between Kim Jong-un and President Trump Moon Jae-in was the result of the post-2016 sanctions?
2: I don't think so. If we look back, President Moon's diplomacy in late 2017, President Moon from South Korea, leading up to and including at the Winter Olympics, really was the prime mover behind the summits It was wonderful diplomacy, a case study in really how to work with allies. And President Trump had been saying right from during his election campaign that he could do a deal with Kim Jong-un and was prepared to meet him. So I think the conditions are in place. Also empirically, the first summit in 2018 took place in February. The big oil sanctions were in September and then in December 17. So there hadn't been time for them to work through in terms of the effect on agriculture, although all the sanctions were harmful, but not as much not in terms of the qualitative difference that I've talked about in in terms of the effect on agriculture. And secondly, in terms of the second summit in Hanoi, the North Koreans were really concerned about sanctions then. They were going around talking to people at the summit off the record about how they could get aid and that they were desperate at that time. But at that time also, especially just after the Hanoi failure, this is when China stepped in and so there was no need for them to be desperate in terms of actually feeding the population okay the farming sector was being destroyed production was being destroyed but they were no longer desperate so for me empirically in terms of the setup of those summits it was down to south korean diplomacy
1: my last question is about food production so i accept the world food program fao um, conclusion that there are at least 10 million malnourished north koreans the world food program says that sanctions did harm North Korean agricultural production. But the World Food Programme also says that the biggest cause of the decrease in productivity was natural causes, high temperatures, droughts, floods. Those are more important than sanctions in reducing the North Korean harvests. So is there a food security problem in North Korea that goes beyond sanctions? And how do we address that?
2: Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I mean, I worked in North Korea with the UN World Food Programme And UNICEF for a couple of years at the height of the programme and so I was involved in lots of report producing and in lots of discussions in UNICEF and World Food Programme. The way the UN works is that it's a member state organisation and no reports can come out of the UN if they work in a country unless it is part of the government, not just in North Korea, agrees to the wording. The North Korean government from when the organisations went in would not allow any UN organisation or any NGO to put forward an analysis which suggested that there was anything other than natural disasters which was the causation of their problems. And the reason for this was because they didn't want to admit to the outside world that the economic infrastructure was structurally extremely weak and fragile. And it remains the same today, both in terms of what they will let the UN do and in terms of its uh, not wanting to expose their weaknesses. I've read a lot of these UN reports and mostly what the UN agronomists and the officers do is they try to avoid completely going along with saying that it's all down to natural disasters, but make some caveats to bring in the idea that perhaps there could be more efficiency and a change of the economic structure. Um, So that is not surprising. The other thing is, and you often see a lot of political scientists commenting on the agricultural data, well maybe the North Koreans have got something in it that agriculture you know, in North Korea is very special and that it's especially incompetent or specially unsuited. It's completely not true. Agriculture is intrinsically everywhere in the world about the weather. Now, I don't know if anybody listening into this broadcast comes from any of the farming areas in the United States. And you will know, you'll have a smile and you'll say, well, we have bad weather. <laughs> we have storms, we have typhoons, we have sandstorms. How come the United States agricultural sector is so productive? It's not because it doesn't have bad weather, it's because it has fertilizers and pesticides and natural gas and decent agricultural organization and fuel and efficient storage mechanisms and machinery. And that's the same everywhere in the world. Agriculture is about managing weather. The obvious example is that North Korea doesn't have a weather pattern which is only available to that little bit of the northern peninsula, has similar weather in the south and in China, and their yields are not the same as in North Korea. So agriculture is about managing weather. And in fact, they were so successful up until the recent sanctions that the Internal Food and Agriculture Organization reports in 2015 were predicting that North Korea was on target to be a rice surplus country by 2030, in the same way that Vietnam has become a rice surplus country. So this is not a current country which has inherent food security problem. And we also know that from the UNICEF's nutrition statistics, which stopped in 2017 because that's when things nobody can start to get in to do anything serious, show that the nutritional status of children is, is better on average than most of the poor countries of Asia, better than India, for example. Um, so again, agricultural nutrition, we've got lots and lots of data on. We don't have data on other stuff, which is pretty good, but it's good on that, and I'm happy to send it to everybody. It's all public.
1: I believe we have Ambassador Martin Uden with us. Ambassador Uden was the British ambassador in Seoul from 2008 to 11, and he went on to head the UN panel of experts on sanctions against North Korea from 2012 to 2014. So, Ambassador Uden, if you're there, please turn your camera on.
3: Well, I've just turned my microphone on. Uh, oh, can microphone. you? Can, uh, that's a good start, anyway. <laughs> I can hear you very well. Hazel and Mark, great to see you. I thought that was a fascinating discussion, it really was. Um, it's rather self-serving, but it's not surprised, no surprise to find that I agree with Hazel that pre-2016, there was a very different set of sanctions and frankly, a more ethical set of sanctions than we've seen since 2016. The real problem I had with the post-2016 slew of sanctions was, if you like, the, the ordering of them, that the UN threw everything, kitchen sink included, at the problem, exerted that maximum pressure before the diplomatic process started. To my mind, at least try to do it the other way around, get some talks going, and by all means possibly with the threat of enhanced sanctions, but doing it that way around, sanctions first and then diplomacy, you are, as it were, doomed to have that set of sanctions on the UN rulebook, as it were, forevermore. And that's the problem I see now. So, Hazel, the question is, first of all, would there have been a difference in the ethical approach that you can see if you had actually reordered the sanctions actually got that President Moon's process of diplomacy going before you put more sanctions in, but also that other question of, well, how do we get out of this mess now?
2: I think two things there. In terms of the ethical criteria of necessity, if there had been a bit more sustained diplomacy, you could easily argue that sanctions were the only thing that could be done. So they were necessitous. I don't think that's an argument that could really be made substantially now. But it still raises the problem, even if you have more sustained diplomacy of the issue of proportionality. Again, if we use the analogy of the Geneva Conventions that it's simply a war crime to destroy farm production, which is the direct result of post-2017 UN sanctions. And it seems to me that there is a simple way out of it, that rather than abandoning all sanctions, in the process of discussion, A, the UN could have an impact assessment, which is never, ever done, on sanctions and actually it's false to think that we don't have enough information and data to be able to make a decent impact assessment, not on every area, but on some areas. And also to think about, well, let's suspend these sanctions which we know are having these effects. The UN agencies themselves are saying they're having this effect. And then think about where we go from here. It's not an argument necessarily of saying, get rid of all sanctions, but you know, these ones are very, very hard to justify. Running out of
1: time, what I'm going to do is kind of do a rapid-fire round for you. So the first question is, sanctions weren't a form of warfare. They were a f- way to prevent warfare. When the North Korea was developing nuclear weapons in violation of UN resolutions, and because of its atrocious
2: human rights record, what should the UN have done if not sanctions? Yes, that's a very good question. I didn't have time to talk about this, but the main differentiation that all the discussion in the sanctions ethical literature makes between the government and the population and although it would be probably a bit tedious if I went into all the libraries full of discussion about this, there are library forms of discussion on this, and the reason we have to use the ethical literature rather than the legal literature in terms of just war tradition is because the Geneva Conventions or an analogous framework don't apply to peacetime, which is why all the discussion on economic sanctions uses what's called the just war analogy. And it's very, very simple to use that and pretty logical because here we want to talk about the difference between a government which we don't support and a population which is suffers from its government and then through the use of sanctions which are directed against the whole population has a double whammy in terms of its effect. Now what this again in summary, what this means is though that Although the United Nations certainly has a responsibility in international law to think about peace and security, and certainly the North Korean government has the primary responsibility for the welfare of its citizens, this does not mean that other actors do not have responsibility to those same populations. In other words, because a government is killing its people, it doesn't mean to say the UN can do that as well.
1: Based on your current contacts and knowledge, do you have any observation to make
2: about what effect uh, COVID-19 is having in North Korea? I couldn't write about this because I don't have enough data. So I tried just to write about things that I have data on. But given what I know about the medical and health structure, they've got a decent amount of knowledge, they've got lots of facilities, but they've got no inputs, disinfectant, soap, running water, hot water, electricity. It's not as porous a border as it used to be between China and North Korea, but people still come and go across it. And the COVID isn't under control anywhere in the world. And so it's not going to be under control in North Korea. I watch the news as much as anybody else does. And I see that the North Koreans are now trying to blame any COVID outbreak on this poor North Korean in South Korea swum over to North Korea. Given what we all know about the state of North Korea's health system, it would be. And what we know about COVID as much as we all know about COVID is that it really is a hidden enemy. It's impossible for it to be confined to one border.
1: So the question is the opposite of sanctions would be incentives. So, do you see a way ethically to provide North Korea with incentives to denuclearize in ways that wouldn't prop up a regime that's in violation of UN sanctions or in, in resolutions and in the mistreating its population?
2: I think Martin is right. If diplomacy was to go along in the normal manner, one would expect to see some give and take, and some of that would be in terms of providing support to the population given my experience in the food aid sector i thought the un got it about right it wasn't always successful but it tried to monitor to report back to be accountable and that's why we have all this massive data that we do have on north korea today whereas the south korean approach at the time was to give unconditional food aid and that meant the north koreans could just reinstitute the old systems that they had My own view is that there's a big place for the international financial institutions like the World Bank, because they insist on accountability and transparency. And okay, they're lumbering institutions, but insofar as one could say rebuild infrastructure, which would help jobs, which would insist on, for instance, all the international labour conventions to be enforced. And the, to be reports and accountability back to those international financial institutions where you'd have executives which are composed of different countries to monitor them, where there would be technicians and engineers from different countries going in and reporting back on these basic technical issues. I think that that would be a way to slowly, through negotiation, say, well, we'll have a World Bank project which will improve agriculture for example, agricultural infrastructure in South Hwang which is the agricultural breadbasket of North Korea. We're going to do this through all the modalities that we use in every other country in the world. And we're going to come in with our own people and we're going to work with you guys and we're going to report back on everything that we do. And it seems to me that it's the principles of bringing transparency and accountability which help the North Korean population, not just in those particular projects, but in introducing different ways of working and allowing an expansion of the civil and personal decision making space for individuals according to standards which are not about surveillance, which are not about control, which are not about complete the North Korean government telling them what to do. So it's not easy, and there are no automatic answers, but there are some paths in. Actually, we've been very, very unadventurous in terms of UN states, I think, in thinking of various ways in which we could intervene in North Korea positively.
0: That's it for our episode today. Many thanks to Hazel Smith, Mark Tokola and to you listeners for tuning in. You can read more on this very subject in a recent article by Dr. Hazel Smith published on the Pacific Forum. I will include a link to the article in the description of this episode. We also have a very exciting upcoming event. On Wednesday, August 5th, we have a joint event with the Korea Institute for International Economic Policy on how we should think about global value chains in the context of COVID-19 and the U.S.-China trade war. It will be an important discussion that charts where international trade might be headed in the coming years. You will find the RSVP Today event in the description of this episode. Hope to see you there.